Good morning, church family. How are we doing today? Good, good. Uh, I, I just got to say, it, it so um, fills my heart with joy and with pleasure to just hear our church congregation singing together. Uh, we're so blessed with a wonderful team that leads us in worship, but uh, as wonderful as they are, I get the most joy from hearing all the voices of our church family lifting up worship and glory to God as one church family in unity. It's a beautiful thing, and it's easy to do with a, a song like that. Amen. As we continue into the year of the Bible, if you're new here, relatively new, we're doing something this year called the Year of the Bible, where we're going January to December, going Genesis to Revelation, following the one story that is the Bible, that being a story leading up to and revealing and explaining Jesus Christ, what he accomplished, why he came, what he has done in history, and what he will yet do. And I'm a little, a little bit bummed in that this week is the last week that we and our reading plan are in the Gospels. And if you didn't know also with that, if you're new here, we have, we have a reading plan that we're reading through throughout the week. And then we come together as a church family on Sunday and talk about what we read. And so if you want to be in on that and you don't want to just come uh, without having read, I'd encourage you, we have the reading plan out at the info desk. You can grab that once we dismiss. And of course, you can find it on our website as well. We'd love to have you. And I'm telling you, if you get into the word of God for yourself, which is the goal of this whole thing, that if your experience and exposure to the Word of God goes from just randomly hearing a pastor once a week or maybe a couple times a month, hearing them talk about the Word of God, but you get into it for yourself, buckle up. Because you're going to see God grow you, mature you, change you, transform you, work in you, empower you in a way that you hadn't seen when you were living your life treating Scripture much more casually. And so that's why we're doing this year of the Bible. And as I just said, we're this week wrapping up the Gospels. Gospel, that being a word that all of us, even if you don't go to church, that's a term or a word that you've heard before in our society. You could even hear it in, in movies, even in cartoons where there's the gospel truth, or uh, you can take that as gospel. And so what does that mean? And if you've been in church very long, you probably are familiar with the fact that gospel is a term that translates literally to mean the good news. And so when we say that we're wrapping up the gospels, well, what does that mean? We're wrapping up the good newses. Well, not really, when these four authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels in our Bible, wrote their accounts capturing um, their eyewitness experiences, or in the case of Mark, the, the, um, the handed down experiences from Peter, they captured those experiences and told them in what was the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to uh, Mark, the, the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel according to John. And so why four? Well, because all four of the Gospels, they wrote an account of Jesus' life and ministry from their unique perspective with a specific purpose in mind. These Gospel accounts were not these four authors just saying, I'm going to write down everything I know about Jesus' life and everything he did and everything he said. In fact, at the end of the book of John, 
The Apostle John says, man, if we wrote down everything that Jesus did and said, there wouldn't be enough libraries in the world to contain it. And so this is each author saying, what are the things, the, the accounts, the teachings, the things that happened, the things that Jesus did, what are the things that I think need to be told? And of course, if you're a believer in the authority of Scripture, you recognize 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God or inspired by God or superintended by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, correction, rebuke, reproof, that the man of God might be complete. And so we understand all Scripture why are there four accounts? Because God superintended that there would be these four accounts. These were not merely attempts to tell the story of Jesus's life, but to tell the story of Jesus's life in a way that would have theological implications. Again, these four authors weren't just saying, I'm just going to tell the story of his life. They're saying, I'm going to tell the story in a way that people take certain things away. Their theological implications of the way that they tell this. If you can make time to sit down, and I would encourage you to do this, because the one of the, there's strengths and, and weaknesses of the reading plan that we're going through. One of the strengths of the reading plan is we're usually covering one, maybe two chapters a day. The blessing there is that you can dig in a little more. It's, it's not taking up necessarily as much time. The weakness of it is sometimes you lose. The, the feel or the sensitivity to these themes and the intentions when you just read a nugget here, a chapter there, a chapter here. I would encourage you to try and find or even make time to read through each of these accounts in one setting. For example, if you read through the Gospel of Mark in one setting, you're going to start to notice, wait a minute, this dude uses the word immediately a lot. Mark wrote the word immediately 42 times in his gospel. And it's the shortest gospel out of all four. And so when you read it through in one setting, you start to go, man, he sure is using that word a lot. I wonder why. And you can start digging into, again, the theological implications of why Mark, John Mark, wrote his gospel the way that he did. Matthew clearly wrote his gospel with the Jews in mind. I'm going to take just a minute to just kind of differentiate between these four. Matthew clearly wrote his gospel with the Jews in mind. He was a Jew. He became an apostle. He was a tax collector that Jesus called to be a disciple, and then he authorized to be an apostle. He, Matthew spoke to things that Jews would understand and Jews would appreciate, and he spoke to concerns that faithful Jews would have had as it pertains to believing in Jesus, not his existence, but believing in Jesus as the Messiah. For example, think about the genealogies of Matthew. You go to Matthew chapter 1, and you've got what for us as modern Westerners is a snooze fest of the genealogies of Jesus. He, he traces Jesus' lineage from Jesus back to the Babylonian exile, then back to King David, then back to Abraham. Now, this is interesting because you'll also read in that account that he says it was 14 generations from here to here, 14 generations from here to here, and 14 generations from here to here. But if you look at one of the other genealogical accounts in the New Testament, or if you just go back to the history in the Old Testament, you'll go, wait a minute. 
there was more than 14 generations in there. Why did Matthew only account for 14? Well, Matthew was trying to highlight and emphasize, one, Jesus as the fulfillment of those three things, the fulfillment of the exile promise that God was going to restore his people, the fulfillment of the covenant given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God said, I will make a house of you and your family, your, there will be someone who is a descendant of you, essentially, that will rule and reign forever. Their kingdom will have no end. And he's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant. And then Abraham, when we go to Genesis chapter 12, where God gives the promise to Abraham saying, I will make you great, a great nation. I will bless you and I'll bless those who curse you or bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And through you, all families of the earth will be blessed. Matthew traces that lineage to Abraham to confirm and prove Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham thousands of years before. So what about the 14? Well, there was another thing in ancient Hebrew culture where consonants in the Hebrew alphabet were assigned numeric values. This was called gematria. And if you look up the name David in Dramatria, DVD would equal 14. It's one more way that the author Matthew is trying to show Jesus is the fulfillment of this Davidic covenant. Jesus is the king in the lineage of David who would rule and reign forever. Going to get my nerd points out today. This stuff gets me really excited. Also, Matthew is slam-packed. If you, again, read Matthew in one setting, you would feel how much it is said things like, and this happened to fulfill the prophet when it said this. And Jesus did this in order to fulfill the prophet Isaiah when he said this. And this happened that this prophecy might be fulfilled. When you read it through in one setting, you start to feel the frequency of statements like that. And it helps you understand Matthew was trying to convince the Jew who was faithful to Judaism that Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism. He was trying to create an apologetic to convince the Jew Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the king of the Jews. I'm getting excited. The Gospel of Mark, he wrote his gospel. Most historians believe that, Ma that Mark actually wrote his gospel first. And you could even argue that the Gospel of Mark could have been called the Gospel of Peter because John Mark was a disciple of Peter. He traveled with him. If you read through the New Testament, the accounts in Acts and other places, you can see that John Mark traveled with Peter on his missionary journeys. And that in those situations, Peter heard, or Peter would tell John Mark all the things that Jesus did and all the things that Jesus said. And so it's long been held and believed that Mark is actually deeply a gospel that was dictated by Peter to John Mark, and John Mark captured it and retold it. And so um, uh, it, it could have been called the gospel of Peter, but nonetheless, Mark penned it. The theme of Mark's gospel was to show, that, uh, to show Jesus' authority, his power, to reveal Christ as the suffering servant, he who did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 
And he really focused on Jesus' works. He very little taught or captured what Jesus taught and said. He was more focused on what Jesus actually did. And Mark gets to the cross as quickly as he can, maybe going with that theme of immediately. Then we consider Luke. Luke is the only author out of the four who is a Gentile. Remember, a Gentile is someone who's not a Jew, like most of us. Luke is the only one who wrote a gospel that was canonized in Scripture who was not a Gentile. And you can read in the opening chapter, the opening phrases of Luke's gospel, that he wrote it to a man named Theophilus. Oh, excellent Theophilus. I wanted to write to you to give you an orderly account of these things. Theophilus, or uh, Luke, as a Gentile, writing to a Gentile, writes his gospel in a way that is to make the case that Jesus Christ is the Savior for all peoples, not just the Jew. In fact, Luke highlights and spotlights Jesus' love, his ministry, his grace, and his engagements with the outcast, the downtrodden, the reject, the marginalized, he focuses on Jesus' love, care, and ministry to those people groups more than any of the other gospels. He's trying to shine the light on Jesus is the Savior, which is a word that is riddled throughout Luke's gospel. Jesus is the Savior for all peoples. Now, the gospel of John is to declare the deity of Jesus. John's gospel is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke's. Those three gospels are called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic in that they all three are very similar. In fact, it's believed that Matthew and Luke referred to Mark's gospel for format and um, inspiration. And then John, his feels completely different. It's not a synopsis of Jesus' life the way that Matthew, Mark, Luke are. John's is very different. He writes from a different perspective. And in fact, whereas Matthew and Luke trace the genealogies of Jesus, where Matthew's tracing from Jesus to the Babylonian exile, to King David, and then to Abraham, and Luke traces all the way back to Adam, showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Genesis 3 crushing of that serpent's head, John wants to show that Jesus is God. That's the point of his gospel. In fact, how does John chapter 1 open? In the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and nothing was made, that, or, and the, nothing that was made was not made without him. Showing the Jew who knew Genesis would have heard John's writing and gone, oh, he's connecting this back to Genesis. He's showing that this Jesus is the pre-incarnate Christ who has eternally existed with the Father and the Spirit, three in one, co-equal, co-eternal, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. John is trying to show Jesus is God. He, um, he gives these connections to deity, he's constantly showing what Jesus did and constantly saying the things that Jesus accomplished as God. So, why four Gospels? Well, a few reasons. I've already said the Lord inspired the, author, the authors to write what they wrote, and he superintended, meaning he guarded and guided, he superintended the canonization of Scripture, what would be considered Scripture. There were other writings that didn't make it into the Bible. 
Because all the early Christians got together and they wrestled and argued and debated and prayed and said, yeah, this stuff has some stuff in it that doesn't mesh. So we're going to say that's not inspired as authoritative scripture. So one, one of the reasons we have four gospels is because God intended that way. Why did God intend it? Well, two, to give us a more full view of Jesus from these differing perspectives. Number three, to give weight to the evidence in these four accounts. Simon Greenwald, uh, the well-known and accepted authority on what constitutes as reliable evidence in a court of law, he examined the four gospels from a legal perspective. And he noted that the type of eyewitness accounts given in the four gospels, accounts which agree but with each writer choosing to omit, omit different details than the others, is typical of reliable independent sources that would be accepted in a court of law as strong evidence. As strong evidence. Today, some things have been argued from Scripture as if they're contradictions when they're truly complementary. They're calling this contrary when it's complementary. There's a difference in people, or there, there will be different people noting different things from their different perspective. For example, if someone came here today, if someone came here today to our service and then they left, and you talk to them, they could say, yeah, I went to church today, and the preacher preached, and he talked about the Gospels. And then you could see another person who went to church today, and they could say, um, yeah, it was great. The worship team did three songs and Pastor Stephen preached about the Bible and how it's all about Jesus and we left. Those are two different accounts with two different details, which one's telling the truth. They both are. Both, both of those statements are true. Now, if you ask the sixth grader who came to church today, they might say, oh, church today started with announcements with Miss Gabby, and then the band did that champion song, which I love, and JT did that part that was so cool on the guitar. Oh, and then, and then Aaron preached. Well, you could read that later and sit here and go comparing written accounts, like, wait a minute, I thought Stephen preached. You're telling me Aaron preached. These are contradictory. No, they're complementary from the experiences and perspectives of the different participants. And so, so many things that are lobbied against the authority of Scripture as contradictions are compliments. And this is important to understand because this week, if you read your Bible reading plan, you would have read the closing chapters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this is where a lot of contention comes in with the varying accounts of Christ's burial, resurrection, and ascension. Well, wait a minute. This point says one angel, and this point says two angels, and this one says the girls came first, and this one then says that John came first, and this one says that Peter was running around. Like, what is going on? These don't work well yeah, they're complementary accounts from their different perspectives and experiences. They are not contradictory. And again, Simon Green, uh, Greenwald examined this account, the four Gospels, and said, in legal court, these would have stood up as strong evidence in a court of law. What each person accounts is based on their perspective and their experience. Now, Having said all that, for the purpose of today's sermon, as we wrap up the Gospels, I'll be in the last chapter of Luke, because that's the account that best serves our purposes today and our transitioning into the book of Acts. So let's turn to Luke chapter 24 today. 
Sorry to open up with what might feel like school or history or whatever it might be, but this is helpful stuff for us. And hopefully, by the grace of God, I've been able to even answer maybe some questions, concerns that you might have had as you've been reading these different accounts that highlight different details. Luke chapter 24, we're going to read the entire chapter 24, verses 1 through 53. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with whom or with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Saying, don't you know what's been going on? Verse 19. And he said to them, what things? <laughs> like he doesn't know. And they said to him, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and... Besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened, meaning it's for sure he's, he's really dead. It's been three days. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, notice this, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, meaning the Torah, 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the rest of the Hebrew Old Testament. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can you imagine walking seven miles with Jesus, hearing him say, I think about Abraham, and you remember how he had to take his son up the mountain, his son bearing the wood, Isaac, up on the mountain. And Isaac said to dad, hey, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And, and Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the sacrifice. Do you not see how that lamb was the Christ and that it was necessary that the Christ must come and suffer these things? Think about all these things. Can you imagine walking and hearing Jesus just expound the Old Testament, explain all these accounts that were typological markers pointing to himself, these things that he would accomplish, that he would do, that he would fulfill in the perfect time of God's plan? Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the days are now far spent. So we went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Remembering Jesus to his disciples in the Passover, the Last Supper, talking to his disciples, said, take, eat, this bread is my body which is broken for you. This wine is my blood which is shed for you. And after explaining all this to these guys, walking with them for miles and for hours, they sit down, he breaks the bread, and their eyes are opened, and they recognize this whole time they've been walking with the resurrected Christ. And in that moment, Jesus just goes, What would you be thinking? How would you feel? Not trying to be crude, but you might need a new pair of drawers. Like you would be in a state of mind you have never been in before. You talk about, yeah, when you know and have said all these things, you think about Jesus and how disappointed and heartbroken and grieving you were over the fact that the chief priests crucified him and you had hoped that he was the one to redeem. And then this strange man who for some reason the Lord veiled to where they couldn't see yet is sitting there explaining all these things to them about who he is and how he fulfilled it. And then he goes, ah, it's me. Bye. How would you feel? You would be mind blown in a way you never have been in your life. And you would be elated and full of joy deeper than you have ever been in your life. So much so that after going seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, they go, we got to book it back. And we got to go tell the 11 what we just saw and what we just experienced. Verse 32, they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us 
while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven. And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Let me unpack that phrase for you. Again, that means he went, all of a sudden, they're talking about, yeah, yeah, Peter says he saw him. The, the ladies, they say they saw him and, or, or that the angel told him uh, that, or told them that he wasn't there. One of them even said that they saw him and talked with him. And we walked all the way from Jerusalem to Emmaus with him. And then our eyes were open when we broke the bread and it really was him. He's alive. And then Jesus is like, ta-da, <laughs> here I am. What would you feel? What would you think? What would it be like to be in that room? It's so easy for us to just read, oh yeah, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. That's neat. Next. Have you ever stopped to consider what it would be like to have had your heart devastated by seeing your perceived Savior, your hope on the cross, and saying, it is finished, and gives up his spirit. Some of them even tended to the body, and prepared his body and put it in the grave, and they know it's been three days. And then you're hearing all these rumors, you're hearing all these things happen, and then all of a sudden you're gathered together talking about it, and he just appears in the room. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. They're like, peace? Are you kidding me? <laughs> peace to you. But they were startled, see, and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Why? Because they saw three days ago everything that happened to this man. They saw him beaten. They saw him whipped. They saw him carry that cross. They saw him take the nails. They saw him hanging up there. They saw him for hours asphyxiated and, and struggling to breathe, wrestling back and forth between the pain of hanging and not being able to breathe and the pain of pulling yourself up by nails that are through your hands and your feet going. <sighs> they watched that. They watched the spear come through his ribs and pierce his heart. They watched the blood and water pour out. They saw the limp body of Jesus Christ come off the cross. So to see him, they're frightened and terrified thinking, it's a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still, <laughs> and while they still disbelieved, and that phrase I think is more meant to say, we can't believe, the same way, Something amazing happens. You go, we can't believe it. And while they 
still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, rightly so. He says to them, you guys got anything to eat? Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Random. Why? Why did he do it? And then why did Luke account it? Like of all the things that have just happened, he just goes, ta-da, and appears in the room out of nowhere. All these spectacular, miraculous things are happening. And Jesus says, you guys got anything to eat? And they give him some fish and he eats it. Why? Did he do that? Why did Luke account it? To slam the door shut on doubt. They're still sitting here, it says, still disbelieving maybe. They thought he was a ghost. They saw everything he went through. And to show them, nope, it really is me. I really am alive. This really is my body and I really am hungry. So you're going to sit and you're going to watch me eat some fish just so you can see that I really was dead, I really am alive, and here I am in flesh and bone, the resurrected Savior of mankind. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, where? In the law of Moses, again, citing the Torah, and the prophets, that was the sum, these two statements, the law and the prophets was the way that they said the Hebrew Bible. That everything written about me, now, we've gone through the Old Testament this year. I don't know if you guys, did you ever see Jesus written, like did you see someone named Jesus in the Old Testament? Now, you might see Joshua, and if you read Jesus' name in Hebrew, you'd see Yeshua, and so you might be able to make some connections there, but did you see Jesus of Nazareth written anywhere in the Old Testament? Did you read about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament? No, you did not, except you did. In all these different accounts, these types and shadows that were typological pictures that were foreshadowing him who would come. These covenants that were promised that Jesus would show up and do different things and the, and the different apostles multiple times it says, and Jesus did this and they remembered where it was written this. So many times in the gospels it says Jesus said this and they remembered where it was written this. And one more time after he's raised from the dead in this room with the apostles and their company, he starts opening up the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and everything from there unto Micah. And he's starting to explain, this is the stuff that was pointing to me. You guys remember Isaiah 53, that suffering servant? who was wounded for our transgressions, who was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. You guys remember three days ago? Did you see my back? All that stuff was about me. The Bible is one story about Jesus. 
It's not a bunch of just random little isolated pericopes or accounts or narratives here and there. It is those things, but they all were written together by dual authorship, meaning inspired by God, and then through the minds and pens or mouths of, of real people to account the redemption story that God had planned before the foundations of the earth. God orchestrated and ordained history to happen in a way that when Jesus showed up at the fullness of time, he would do and say things that they could look back in history, look back in God's inspired word of the Old Testament and go, Check, Jesus did that. Yep, Jesus did that. Yep, he was born in Bethlehem. Yep, he moved to Egypt. Yep, he did all these different things. The Bible is one story about Jesus. Then he opened their minds, verse 45, to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Notice this, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Why does it matter that we recognize the Bible is one story about Jesus? Yeah, there's David's story in there, there's Abraham's, Moses's, Noah's. Nehemiah, Micah, all these different stories in there that are all parts of God's story about Jesus, God's redemptive plan. Why is it important we recognize the Bible that way? Because if we don't see the Bible that way, we'll see it as just a bunch of random moral lessons or spiritual and Christian ways to make our lives better. We'll see it as this Christianized or, or, or God-blessed self-improvement manual. And when you see the things like the structures and the themes and the literary devices that these authors employ, you can start to recognize there are intentions in these writings that are more than just storytelling, that are more than just self-improvement. This is one massive thousand year, thousands of years long story of how God planned to redeem mankind. The Bible is God's redemption story. And when we recognize that the Bible is one story about Jesus, it ought to help us and that our lives should be one story about Jesus as well. Our lives are not a story about us. God did not give you breath so that you could write a story about you. God did not redeem you and save you and forgive your sins so that you could show everyone how awesome you are. God did not put you on this earth to have your own little story to tell, but that you, like David, Abraham, whoever else you might read about in Scripture, you would be one more person in history saying yes and amen to the story of Jesus Christ. Our lives should be one story about Jesus. And if your life is a story about Jesus, then it determines everything about the way that you do everything you do. If my life is about me, then I ask myself, what do I want? But if my life is about Jesus, I ask myself, what does he want? If my life is about me, I might go more by my feelings. But if my life is about Jesus, then I need to die to myself, take up my cross and follow him. 
We must crucify this ungodly idea that we are here on this earth in this point in history just to have our best life now. We are here for God's purposes, such a time as this, where he placed us in history according to his plan and according to his time to continue to tell the story with our lives that Jesus is the King, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the God of all creation, and he is worthy of our devotion. Amen? Now, Luke why Luke? Well, it gives a lot of these synopsises there of what we need to see as we're wrapping up the Gospels and as we've spent a whole lot of time in the Old Testament that all these things are making the cases about who Jesus is as the fulfillment of all of Scripture. Luke didn't only write Luke, though. If you've done any study or research, you might have learned also that Luke had a sequel called the book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. He also wrote the book of Acts. In fact, most scholars believe that it was really one volume, two parts. And that same Theophilus that you read about in the opening chapter of Mark, you read about also in the opening chapter of Acts. Let's go to Acts chapter 1 really quick because I want to point out something here. Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. And the first book, O Theophilus talking about his gospel, the gospel of Luke. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs like eating fish. <laughs> by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while they were staying with him, with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? talking about Jesus, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, notice this, in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you are a highlighter or an underliner, you should take that verse and mark it, highlight it, underline it, because scholars also majoritively agree, overwhelmingly historically agree, that, that Luke, when he wrote this book of Acts, that this verse 8, what we call verse 8, is the format of what you would see in the rest of the book. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem? and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And if you read the rest of the book of Acts, you will see the gospel spread starting in Jerusalem, and then you'll see the gospel spread into all of Judea, and then you're going to see the gospel spread to Samaria, and then you see the gospel spread to the representative of the ends of the earth when it closes with Paul getting the gospel to Rome and to Caesar. Scholars all are going, this is what Luke was doing. He was saying, 
Here's the account. Here's the story of the way that this verse, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 8, prescribes the rest of the book. Now, let me just dial up the interesting meter a little bit more. Because in my study and research, I had a scholar that also pointed out that the book of Luke, remember, he wrote Luke and Acts, is the same exact thing in reverse order. That if you read the book of Luke, in the opening few chapters, you see Jesus in his infancy in a context that is painted of the empire of Rome, the ends of the earth. There's all sorts of Roman empire and kingdom and Caesar terminology. Then as you continue reading on through Luke, you see Jesus going to Samaria or Galilee of the Gentiles doing his ministry there. Then if you keep reading Luke, you see Jesus taking his ministry into all of Judea. Then if you keep reading in Luke, you see Jesus turning, setting his face to Jerusalem is what Luke accounts. And then you see him going into Jerusalem where you've got Luke and Acts. I'm sorry, Luke and Acts both having the ending of Luke in Jerusalem, the starting of Acts in Jerusalem, and then the dissension from those other points. If you remember when we talked about Genesis chapter 21 or 22, the account of Isaac being taken up the mountain, I taught about the literary structure called chiasms. John, if you could put that slide up right now. I want to show you guys something interesting here. There's an ancient Hebrew literary structure called chiasms, where they would do this. They would build ascending and descending points with the pinnacle being the central point. Again, you see Jesus' infancy in the Roman Empire. At the start of Luke and at the end of Acts, you see the gospel in Rome. Then you see Jesus' ministry in Samaria, the Galilee, of the Galilee of the Gentiles, and then you see the gospel in Samaria. And then you see in Luke, Jesus in greater Judea. In Acts, you see the gospel spread in Judea. And then the central pinnacle of both accounts meeting in the middle is the resurrection and ascension of Christ, Jesus in Jerusalem and the gospel in Jerusalem. And let me remind you, the purpose of a chiasm is to say, of all these things I'm telling you, building up to, here's the main point. And the thing that I'm descending back down from with these mirrored elements, this pinnacle is the main point. Luke, writing with a Hebrew chiasm, is saying the point of all this stuff I'm telling you is the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Why? Because the resurrection is the turning point of history. The resurrection of Christ is the turning point, the linchpin, the watershed, the game changer of history. Why? There's been other people who claim to be the Messiah before. There's been other people who said, yep, I'm the fulfiller. There's been other people who were good teachers. There's been other people who were prophets. There's been other people who have died for worthy causes. Never before had there been anyone who rose from the dead. Apart from Jesus' ministry to Lazarus and others. Jesus raising from the dead is the ultimate mic drop of history. Wherein he is declaring, I am not just another man. I am not just another teacher with some good lessons to make your life better. 
I am not just another prophet like Moses or Micah or whomever you might cite. I actually am God incarnate in the flesh here to live and die for your sins, to be raised from the dead, to conquer your sin, to redeem you, make you new by the Holy Spirit, and invite you into the kingdom of God. I'm a little excited today. Jesus is declaring, I am God. I am not another king. I am the king of kings, the Lord of lords. I am the victor over Satan, sin, and death. I am the deliverer from your sin. I am the healer of the broken hearted. I was dead and I am alive forevermore like the promise given to my ancestor, King David. I am the means through which every single family in earth can be blessed by faith in my name. And just like Abraham being accounted as righteous because his faith in God's word, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be similarly blessed by being called righteous before God, having your sins blotted out, being forgiven, being welcomed back to the Father because Jesus fulfilled what was spoken to Abraham thousands of years before. If Jesus is alive, I wanna speak to that if for just a second. And I'll say this, I don't have a lot of time left. There is more historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ than there is for the existence of Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. There's more historical evidence for the existence of Jesus of Nazareth, the accounts of his life and ministry and him working miracles. There are more historical evidences that are verifiable and strong evidence, as Greenfield told us, there's more evidence that he lived, that he taught, that he worked miracles, that he died on the cross, and at least, bare minimum, there is an empty tomb. Now the debate could come around, did he raise from the dead or were his disciples so committed to this illusion that they've accepted at this point that they're going, we've got to steal the body. We've got to hide it so people think he really rose from the dead. The problem with that is you don't die for a body that you took out of the grave and some message that you're just trying to purport. But for thousands of years, and especially with the apostles, 11 of them were brutally murdered for Christ. I don't know about you, but if I carried the body out of the tomb and went and hid it and I'm sitting there and they're about to hang me upside down on a cross and drive nails through my hands and feet and crucify me, I'd go, just kidding. <laughs> the body's over there. Next time you're struggling with doubt, just sit here and ask, do I doubt that Alexander the Great lived and did all the things that history said he did? Or Julius Caesar? Because there's more evidence for the life, teachings, works, death, and resurrection of Christ than there is for those guys.
This is wonderful because if Jesus is alive, then he conquered death. And we need to not live in fear of death. If he lives, then he conquered sin. And we need not live in bondage to sin. If Jesus is alive, then that means we are forgiven and we need not live in guilt and shame. If Jesus walked out of that tomb, then he, he's coming back again for his bride, for his church. And we don't have to live in anxiety, fear, and worry over the things that are happening in our world today. Buddha is in the grave. Gandhi is in the grave. Joseph Smith is in the grave. Muhammad is in the grave. Jesus Christ is alive forevermore with an empty tomb. So let's live like he is. Let's orient our lives around him. Let's prioritize his kingdom mission in our lives. Because if he's alive and if he really rose from the grave, then our American dream is too small and too short-lived. Amen? It's not worthy of our pinnacle pursuits. If he really rose from the dead, then he really is coming back. And if he really rose from the dead, then we really will stand before him. Every single one of us is going to die one day. And if he really rose from the dead, then on that day of judgment, if you've placed your faith in him, you can have confidence that you will be judged faithful. And hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, not because you were good, because you believed in the one who is good. Jesus Christ and he died on that cross to pay for our sins and if we repent and believe we are counted faithful just like Abraham we are counted righteous where all the sins that your conscience blames you of and all the guilt and shame that the enemy throws at you you can go I'm forgiven I'm forgiven because that man who lived 2,000 years ago died in my place and he really did die and he really did raise from the dead and he really is good Lord I just ask today that your Holy Spirit would confirm in our hearts what your word has declared to be true not because I said the right things or because I'm a good communicator or anything like that God by your Holy Spirit, I ask that you would open eyes to see and believe the truth, to be willing to humble ourselves and confess sin and repent and turn from it and walk into the light. And God, any fear or doubt or worry that, that is revolved around faith in you, I ask, Lord, that by your grace through the Holy Spirit, you would put those fears and worries and concerns to rest and that you would give us that Romans confirmation in our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we are children of God. For those who truly are yours children, God, make it deeper, make it more solid. Let them know. And if there's anyone hearing me that doesn't know, who hasn't seen, I ask you to open their eyes. I ask you to give them faith. I ask you to bring them to repentance. And I ask you to give them the courage to walk it out through baptism. In Jesus' name, amen.